If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Revelation 15 and 16. It's in there, also printed in your uh, bulletin. Where we've previously left off, we're picking now up to finish out the remaining um, sections of the book of Revelation. And where we have just previously been is we've seen uh, the Lamb go with his saints and bring about the great harvest of the earth at the end of chapter 14. We pick up now with chapters 15 and 16. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great And amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just Are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. 
the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbles, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. That is the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading of it. Let us go now to the Lord in prayer. Just, holy, Righteous and sovereign are you, O God of all, maker and creator of all things, visible and invisible. Lord, we pray, O now, that you would speak to your people, that you would put within our anxious and weary souls a supernatural hope that you are who your word says you are. And that you are both the just and the justifier. Give us now eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the book of Revelation, there is one recurring question. And it's actually not unique to the book of Revelation itself. It's a question that appears constantly throughout the pages of Scripture. And that is the the cry of the saints from Genesis to Revelation that cries like this, How long, O Lord? We see this uh, recurring throughout, but especially in Revelation chapter 6, the prayer of the saints under the altar. How long, O Lord, until you vindicate your saints? How long, O Lord, until you vindicate your name? There's tied up with this question a deep longing for justice. But that's not even unique 
to Christians or the saints who undergo the deep persecution of the world around us, but it's also something that, that is naturally gnawing at each and every conscience in the world. Everyone everywhere has a deep sense that there's something wrong with this world around us. That, that it is intrinsically unjust. When we look at the world around us, there's a longing that everything will finally be set right, that justice will be done. That is what our hearts long for. That's why we watch movies like Batman, the great crusader who comes and he has one grand banner for all to hear, and that is justice. It appeals deeply to each of us because we see that the world does not bring justice. And that is what we long for. The question, though, becomes for us quickly, and everyone everywhere has to answer this question, because our consciences will not let us ignore that justice must be done. The question suddenly becomes, though, what is the source of our hope? For justice. John is writing this and given these visions to give to the persecuted church. And it is here in this passage that the Lord Jesus calls his people to stop and to look at him and to set our hope that he will once and for all bring justice. And he actually gives us a variety of reasons uh, to place our hope that he will bring about justice. And the first that we see, in fact, is that God is just. This passage spends much time, and um, people look at a variety of details, but we miss really the, the gold here. This passage spends much time to talk about the very character of God. And the first premise that it wants to tell us, here's why you can hope that God will vindicate his name, will vindicate his saints, will bring about justice once and for all, is because God himself is just. See what the text says in chapter 15. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. He goes on to say, All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. But the angels also sing a very similar thing. Chapter 16, verse 5, the angels say this, Just are you. O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, and it's what they deserve. And they cry out from under the altar in verse 7, Yes, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments. The text wants us to see first and foremost that that longing within each and every one of our hearts for things to be set right, for justice to be done, is actually a very good thing. It's a mark that we are the image bearers of God, that we long for justice and that we long to see the God who is just bring justice to bear. 
But it's very, very interesting how this justice comes to bear, especially in this passage in particular, because where there is justice and wrongfulness done, there is wrath. And it's interesting that, that in, our, in our culture especially, and even within my own heart, I, I see this passage and I see the wrath of God, and there's a great discomfort that comes with it. Here the Lord is pouring out these plagues upon these people. And it seems so angry. It, it seems as though um, God is, is pure wrath. And it's interesting that this is something that's very, very unique to our culture, isn't it? Where, where we, we like to see the world around us and we're, we're a highly... Um, distracted, highly organized, highly protected culture. And so things like chaos and justice, though, though we long for them, when consequence comes to bear, it makes us uneasy. Because generally speaking, by and large, aside from maybe hateful things said on Twitter, we're generally fairly nice to each other. Even on you know, such chaotic places as I-65, we're generally pretty nice to each other. But yet, the rest of the world and the rest of human history ha has seen the great anarchy and the great chaos that comes with a fallen human nature that says, I'm going to get mine at your expense. Something that Americans oftentimes miss. But theologian Miroslav Volf, a Croatian by birth, um, was writing a book on ethics in the 90s as the Serbians were wreaking utter havoc on his relatives, on his former neighbors, burning entire cities, herding off his people into concent concentration camps. And Wolf, having seen firsthand the deep pains of injustice, looks at the just nature of God, and writes this. In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. You see, what Wolf is picking up here is that by nature, who God is, one of his characteristics, one of his attributes is that he is just and holy. It's a vital part of who he is. And in our human nature, that makes us uneasy. We know the fallenness of our own hearts. We hear and know that God sees all of our wretchedness all of the injustice that we have brought to bear, and we say, if God is a just judge, then I am doomed. Except, the saints here bring us much comfort, because it's the justice of God that drives the saints to worship. They've cried out to the Lord, and said, how long, O Lord? And the Lord here has turned their plea into praise. But here's why. The Lord is able to turn their plea into praise 
Not because they're good in and of themselves. Not because they've turned uh, a blind eye to the justice of God or that God has turned a blind eye to their wretchedness. But because they recognize the fact that God is both just and the justifier. He who knows the wretchedness of our souls has sent forth his son that we might be the righteousness of God. See the glory of God's justice, but only in the glory of God's justice do we see the wonders of his grace. And it drives the saints to worship this God. But the saints see another reason to sing and hope in God's justice, and that is this. God is sovereign. See this in uh, chapter 15, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses. O Lord God, the Almighty, O King of the nations. And they continue this on in chapter 16, verse 7. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your judgments. They take great comfort that not only is God just, but God is also sovereign, which means this. Because God is just and also sovereign, it means God can do something about it. The Lord is able to see the injustice done in the world and once and for all make a just pronouncement and set the world right once more. And it's very interesting John will continue on in his visions in chapter 15, 7, and 8 to see another aspect of God's glorious, just sovereignty. It says this, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. John gets this glorious vision to look and see the holy, righteous, sovereign Lord seated on his throne. It is not the rulers and the principalities of this world who are are calling the shots. They have not usurped the Lord, but he is seated on his throne in his temple. And he will bring justice to bear. It's very interesting that there's there's almost a parallel passage here uh, to the book uh, of Habakkuk. And if you'll recall... um, Habakkuk, it begins this way. Habakkuk is pleading to the Lord because the the unjust and idolatrous Assyrians are the Lord's means of judgment against the the covenant community. He's gone astray. And it opens up like this with the same prayer that we've heard before. How long will I cry, O Lord? And Habakkuk is is having, in essence, really this dialogue with the Lord. It seems unjust, O God, that the idolaters are here to bring about your judgment. How long will you leave us in the midst of this? 
And he, he'll even go through at the end of chapter 2 and, and describe the, the, the deep idolatry, not only within Assyria, but also within the Israelites himself. And this is the only thing that brings Habakkuk comfort, and it's the only thing that can bring us comfort as well. He pauses at the very end, and he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of creation be silent before him. You see, the Lord, in his sovereignty, tears down idols. There is no room for another sovereign Lord. It is the living God and the living God alone, which is precisely what the Lord is doing with the plagues. We, we see this whole passage here is, is very much painted and characterized by the plagues going on in, in Egypt. And each of the plagues that are, take place in the book of Exodus is the Lord systematically going through and destroying the idols of the Egyptians themselves. But it's very interesting whenever we look at especially chapter 16, notice how these plagues are destroying our idols too. Plagues, or the bowls, one through five, are destroying the idolatry of worldly comfort. Things like... Uh, the sea, we take much um, you know, comfort in, in owning the sea as a resource. We look at uh, the natural world itself. We look at even our own physicality and bringing about these sores upon us. The Lord destroys their idolatry of worldly comfort. But then in bowls 6 and 7, the Lord also destroys the idol of world powers, of which at the very helm is this false trinity, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, leading them astray. The Lord is tearing down their idols. The Christians should mark themselves here, though, and recognize that the Lord, in fact, destroys our idols as well. Don't, aren't we so prone just like the rest of the world, to wander back into the idols of this world, to, to be brought back into the idolatry of our worldly comfort, to be prone to say, the world powers at be will deliver me. They'll preserve me. They'll hold me fast. They are just, and they will justify me. It's in fact our idols that lie to us, and tell us that we are justified and are just. And while they do this, they're slowly killing us. We should take great comfort, though, that the Lord in his mercy for his saints does not leave us with our idols. And as much as it pains us, and as much as we want to cry out with Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, must we cry the Lord takes these idols from us so that he can fill us with something far, far better. So that we might know that he alone is the sovereign Lord, the just Lord, but the Lord who takes the idols from his saints because of his wondrous grace. But there's a third reason here to hope in the justice of God, and that is that God's Justice is imminent. We see this in chapter 16, verse 15. 
There's uh, a buildup as it goes through the various uh, bold judgments, and then there's uh, a parenthetical statement. There's a break for us to pause. It, it's almost as though the tension on the rubber band is about to snap, and so the Lord gives us a reprieve and says, wait right here. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, this kind of language of the Lord's imminence um, from his ascension onward, the imminent second coming or the second advent of Christ is, is imminent from that moment on. And oftentimes, especially in the, the mid-20th century and the later 20th century, this was almost a scare tactic. But notice here and how Jesus uses similar language in the Gospels and Paul will use similar language in his epistles that Jesus's Imminent return and imminent justice is a wonderful hope and comfort for the saints. What the Lord is saying here is that he will not forsake his bride, but will come and take her and be with her and bring about his just wrath to all that have persecuted her and slandered her and brought reproach upon her. He will not leave us in the wilderness, but he will set all things right. But there's also a very interesting blessing and call that goes with this. Not only does he say that his judgment and return are imminent, he also says this, blessed is the one who stays awake. There's a subtle call there for us to say we must fix our eyes on our hope. The Lord has not forgotten about his people. The Lord has not forsaken his beautiful bride, the church. The Lord will not leave us stranded in the wilderness, but even now is with his people and preserving his people and will have the final say in the last day that he is Lord of all and his bride is glorious and justified by his righteousness. Which brings us to really the final point. And that is this, that God's justice is final. We see this really brought to bear by this recurring uh, of sevens throughout a, uh, a number of completion, but also the bookends of this passage. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then I saw... Another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And what follows, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting passage that, uh, especially chapter 16, you have this increase in this constant um, wrath being poured out and the tension is being drawn tighter and tighter and you expect when will it snap when will the rubber band be done when will they finally repent when will it be over and it actually builds to this climactic moment when the forces of satan assemble for battle against god the almighty at armageddon and we're presented with the question that Really, scripture has been seeking to answer from Genesis chapter 3. Will God's promises be brought to bear? 
Will the seed of the woman crush the head of the seed of the serpent? Because sometimes it looks like that won't happen. And right now, as we're, as we're standing on the, plagues of Arm, or the plains of Armageddon, we look out and we see this will be a great battle. There will be much casualties. Will God, in fact, win? Which I think is a question that every Christian, though we might not say it, asks. Will God actually win? Will he keep his promises? Will he be able to to sanctify his church, to present us as blameless? Will there even be a church in this fallen world around us? Is God actually able to do this? And so we stand thinking that this battle might be a loss. But notice the conclusion. Verse 17 of chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. The Lord Jesus wants to see that before the first arrow is shot against his people, before the first sword is swung, before the first javelin is hurled, the Lord God, the Almighty, just and holy, has set the end from the beginning. And he has declared, it's done. There's no contest. There's no battle. There are no casualties for his saints he says it's done it's finished the battle has been fought and victory is the Lord's it is done Christ is victorious and his saints with him the Lord Jesus wants us to look and see him as the righteous just, sovereign ruler for us to put away our idols, for us to put away our false shields and our false swords and look to he alone who is able to bring about a final justice that he might set all things straight and make all things right. But he calls us to do that not by sight, but by faith. And so we stand and we sing with the Israelites just before they see the hand of the Lord deliver them from their enemies. In the book of Exodus, as they go through the Red Sea, the Lord gives them this call, and it is our call today as well. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. That is what we do. We fix our eyes on our Lord who is just and who is righteous and who is our hope. Let us go to him in prayer. Our gracious Lord, you are just and righteous and will vindicate your saints, O Lord. You are our hope. The gospel 
is our only hope. That Christ also cried out from the cross his victory by his death and resurrection, that it is finished, the battle is won, and it is done, O oh Lord. But Lord, might we also see your justice on clear display, that we who are the rebels against you, who have fallen in Adam and continue to wonder, O oh Lord, your justice poured out upon Christ your Son for us. His body broken that we might be redeemed. His blood poured out that we might be washed. And so, O oh Lord, I pray that you wash us and feed us by your word and your spirit. And Lord, now as we come to this table, that you would feed us with your sacrament, that we would taste Christ and see his glory on display, that you are just and righteous, but that you are also the justifier of your wayward people, and that you receive the greatest glory in the redemption of your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.